Hello, friends and adventurers. It's Rob, the D&D wannabe, coming in before the show to share some great news. New news! Our podcast has been supported for months now by Misty Mountain Gaming, and they're now rewarding you, our listeners, with savings on all their fine D&D products such as metal dice, stone dice, glass dice, miniatures, adventures, dice trays, and more. You can use the code TWINS10, that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, to save 10% on all purchases made in their online store at MistyMountainGaming.com. Every code redeemed helps support Steven and I, and encourages us to make more and better content for you. So be sure to use code TWINS10 whenever you're buying premium Dungeons & Dragons dice and gear from our good friends at MistyMountainGaming.com. Okay, on with the show. Hello, friends and adventurers. It's Rob coming in before the episode to tell you that... The audio is not going to be great in this one, specifically on my end. I've been spending a lot more time on the road with Misty Mountain Gaming, going to conventions and having a lot of fun seeing more of the wonderful country we live in. But it does make it harder to record, and in an effort to not put us very far behind on our recording schedule, I've had to record in some less-than-ideal conditions. We did what we could to make it a little easier on the ears, but it's going to be rough compared to the standard that we normally hold ourselves to here at Bardic Twinspiration. I hope it doesn't get too much in the way of your enjoyment and that you still find this episode worth listening to. There's some good stuff in there. Okay, on with the show. Uh, Howdy there, folks. This cheers old Bubba, and I'm here to tell y'all that you's killing your enemies wrong in D&D. Sick and tired of your enemies surviving your puny longsword damage? Don't feel like running up into the hoot nanny when things get feisty? And is reaching for an error every time you feel like shooting your bow aggravating your rheumatiz? Well, buddy, that's cause you ain't using guns! Now you take Bessie here. That's what I call this here hunting rifle. She's right there in the DMG somewheres. Uh, Now this bad boy fires 2d10 damage uh, when you shoot something with it. Now you find me an axe that'll match it. Go on, I'll wait. And this bad mamma jamma's got some powerful range on her. I can bullseye a gnat on a cat's whisker pretty near 30 yards away. That's as far as most crossbows, but more than double the damage. Bessie spits hot death five times before she needs to be fed again. And if you're thinking that this beauty will cost you an arm and a leg, it'll cost your enemies a whole lot more. A rifle like Bessie too much woman for you to handle? Uh, There's little old revolvers and pistols, too. You can be like old Clint or James Bond, if you fancy. Uh, Even the littlest guns hits like a greatsword and does it from a heck of a lot further away. So next time you're hunting, feuding, or just plain bad moodin', get yourself a gun. If your enemies bring a knife to a gunfight, they won't make that mistake twice. Because they'll be dead! Did I make that clear?
Welcome back, friends and adventurers, to Season 2, Episode 2 of Bardic Twinspiration. As always, I'm your host, or should I say co-host, the D&D wannabe. My name is Rob, and I'm here as always, joined by my brother, Steven. Hi! Yes, thank you so much for coming back and joining us again for this new season and this new episode. Sorry if the last one was a really kind of number crunchy one. I hope that some of you enjoyed that as much as I did looking that stuff up. But we're going to be maybe a little less crunchy this episode. So if you really like talking about that stuff... Hey, feedback on your crunchiest episode ever is already good. So I don't think we have to worry about that. Uh, I think our listeners, like us, are nerds about Dungeons and & Dragons, and we just kind of like talking and listening about it. So, here's more of that. I bet you most of the listens on our last episode are actually just me playing it over and over again to help out the stats. <laughs> oh, so you don't just play it to fall asleep to, like I did? Okay. No, I'm just constantly in quality control mode, so for those of you who think we're doing a terrible job, forget I said that. <laughs> and also... Blame me entirely, since I'm the one doing all the editing now. So, Rob, enough about damage types and things that deal them. What are we talking about this week? Uh, about that. Uh, we're we're talking about uh, d- damage types and things that deal them. Oh, well, you know I'm not going to be disappointed about that. Well, hey, we're going to be flipping the script slightly because, let's face it, in our last episode, we were definitely speaking to people of the spellcasting persuasion or to dungeon masters who were trying to make intelligent encounters. Now, we're speaking more to the other half of the table. We're talking about weapons. Those things that the martial characters like. Yes, for those of you who are more martially minded, we're going to give a breakdown of a lot of the different weapons that are in this game, and what situations you might prefer to use one over the other, and what some of the optimal choices are, and uh, the ones that you should basically never pick. There are basically some weapon equivalents of True Strike, and we're going to be looking at some of those today. I'm just getting the mental image of that that old football movie, and all of the martial classes saying, We are martial. We are martial. Ah, gotcha. Man, that probably is an old movie now, isn't it? Ah, well, okay. Bad jokes and very outdated references aside. Speaking of martial, we do need to make a couple of distinctions real quick as we're talking about weapons. Now, we're not going to go over too much of what you can already find in the player's handbook as far as it comes to weapons. That's a very informative couple of pages that'll tell you most of what you need to know about the weapons themselves but kind of leave a little bit to be desired in terms of comparing them to one another in practice, what classes shine with them, and what play styles and feats are effective pairings with them. But let's cover the absolute basics so that we have a place to start from. There are two axes along which weapons are divided. Simple and martial weapons and melee versus ranged. These are probably self-explanatory, but just on the off chance that they're not, simple weapons are things that almost anyone can pick up and be fairly proficient in. There are things like clubs that you hit someone over the head with, or daggers that you just stick the pointy end into the other man. I was going to make that reference at some point if you didn't. Martial weapons, on the other hand, require a bit more training in order to get full use out of them. You know, There is a balance to understand. There is an art to wielding these weapons, hence martial arts. And someone needs to have a decent understanding of those in order to use these weapons effectively. I always think of simple weapons as, as you said, being something that someone can pick up and make good use of. 
I think of martial weapons as being the kinds of things that, when using them, you are as likely to hurt yourself as your opponent if you're not familiar with that type of weapon. Yeah, I can really see that with a flail, for sure. Flails, pole arms, anything unwieldy or fragile or with a different balance, just having weight in an unfamiliar place when you're trying to defend yourself when your life is on the line is a recipe for failure. But if you have that training, they are almost exclusively more effective in combat than their simple brethren. This is true. Now, the second axis by which weapons can be categorized is melee versus ranged. Put quite simply, melee weapons can hit things that are next to you. Ranged can hit things that are slightly to extremely further away, but which are not as effective up close and personal. Yeah, there's not really much commentary to provide on this one. Melee weapons do not work at range. Range weapons are hard-pressed to work in melee, and the mechanics of D&D represent that. And as we get to the examples of them, some of which you are definitely already imagining, it becomes obvious why. Correct. In D&D, when you try to attack someone who is standing immediately next to you with a ranged weapon, you have to make that roll at disadvantage, rolling 2d20 and taking the one that is empirically worse. So it's something that characters may want to consider having a little bit of both, just as a backup, even if though they might specialize in one or the other. Just going to sneak this in before we get into the bulk of our content for this episode. We are only discussing the weapons mentioned in the equipment section of the player's handbook. We are not talking about weapons listed in the Dungeon Master's Guide, like firearms and laser guns and future weapons. These aren't in every campaign. If they are in your campaign, you take them. Yes, on the subject of guns, I think that I can safely say that Bardic Twinspiration officially is on record as saying, yes, if your DM makes them available, (laughs) use them. If your DM lets you make them, use them. To be fair, I do not typically welcome firearms in my campaigns. It's it's not part of the fun for me. And even when they are an option for me in other people's games, it's not part of the fun for me to play with those kinds of weapons. That's not the kind of fantasy that I enjoy. However, if you're looking at these weapons, as Bardic Twinspiration often does, from a numbers and values perspective, you're not going to get better than firearms. That's correct. And Dungeon Masters out there, I think I've said it on the podcast before, but just so you know, plate armor is technically a more modern invention than the original pistols. So just consider that. Take it with a grain of salt and maybe consider letting some of your players have these, especially because for most of the firearms in the game, no specific cost is added for their ammunition. And because of that, you can control the availability of these guns and you can control the availability of their ammunition. How long it takes to craft, whether or not it can be crafted, where you have to go to find the ammunition and how much it costs can really allow you to keep your game from getting out of hand even once you have introduced them to it. Speaking of getting out of hand, a lot of people's first exposure to firearms in Dungeons & Dragons, I'm going to guess was going to be Percy DeRolo in Critical Role Campaign 1. And he wasn't even using the firearms as listed in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Matt and Talison imposed hurdles and disadvantages on using those weapons in that campaign, with misfire chances and other inconveniences that worked to balance Percy's weapons 
with the other weapons used by the other players in the campaign, to a certain extent. But if those hindrances aren't present, they're just empirically better. Yeah, especially when you get to take a feat like Gunner, like I did for my character Walker in that long shot that Cheesecake Panda ran on the Misty Mountain Gaming Twitch channel. That made my character so much more effective, and it was so much fun to play. And at the end of the day, he wasn't crazy broken, uh, even though he did end up dealing more than 100 damage on the very first attack in the game. So that He was pretty broken. That aside, I feel like he was pretty good. So I typically approach these things as the dungeon master, and as a dungeon master, who likes inviting new players to the hobby? Players who don't know exactly what class they want to play, what weapons they want to wield, who may have a fuzzy vision of their character. But I kind of do the same thing even now when I'm creating a character. I think to myself, do I want my character to cast magic? Yes or no? And then do I want my character to wield weapons? And if so, how do I imagine them fighting? Do I imagine them fighting like Legolas? Like Zoro? Like Conan? Whatever the answer is, that kind of sends me down the road of a fighting style. What ability score I might be using as my primary stat in combat, and the types of weapons that I would like to wield. Not to mention even the much larger questions like, what sort of class am I going to play? What sort of fighting styles and feats do I need to take to make this combat style really sing? <laughs> now, you're planning farther ahead than I typically do, or that I encourage newcomers to the hobby to, but... Eventually, yes, and those thoughts do kind of creep into my head as I'm thinking about these things just because of my familiarity with the hobby. So if I know that I want to be an archer, well, I've already got a weapon and a feat in mind. But that is where I start, and then that will possibly inform my class decision. Or vice versa. It can go either way. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of the different combat styles that are available to players in Dungeons and & Dragons, and what sort of weapons you might want to take if that fighting style is for you. I'm going to go ahead and get this out of the way. If you want to forego weapons and just punch and kick people, then well, weapon choice doesn't matter. <laughs> it really doesn't. Because you're not going to be using them very much. You're going to be a monk, and you're going to be happy with it. We will talk about what weapons sing or fit well with particular classes in a little bit, but it's kind of like asking what kind of armor your barbarian is wearing. Like, yeah, they could, but they don't have to. <laughs> but like I said, if you don't want to use weapons, play a monk, you'll still be happy. If you do want to use weapons, let's start talking about some of the different types. So what say if I wanted to use a sword and shield? I feel like that's pretty standard fantasy fare. What sort of weapons would be good for characters that are interested in fighting like that. So, the first thing I'm hearing is that one of your hands is always going to be taken up by that shield. Indeed. In D&D 5e, shields are great. There, there's basically no substitute for having a high enough armor class to not take damage. If you are in a one-on-one -on -one fight, it almost doesn't matter who is hitting harder if they're not hitting at all. So it's taken me a long time to come around on shields because I'm, I'm very aggressive in fantasy combat, but they definitely have their place. And when you are devoting one hand at all times to keeping yourself safe, you want to deal as much damage as possible with that other hand. 
Now, while the area inside the Venn diagram is pretty small, there is an opportunity to be wearing a shield and using a weapon that is based off your dexterity score or your strength score. Strength score is probably the obvious choice, but the possibility is out there. Now, we mentioned melee versus ranged weapons. Typically, melee weapons use the strength ability score, and ranged weapons use the dexterity ability score. But weapons with the finesse property can go either way, and we kind of need to know which one you're going to be using before we steer you to the best weapon for you. Okay. I know that the simple finesse weapons are fairly limited. Uh, Let's just go ahead and throw it out there. The only simple finesse weapon for melee combat is the dagger. Ah, the dagger. So if you're limited to simple weapons, that's the one you're going to choose. But let's say if you were a dexterity-based character who was martially trained. If you have the pick of the litter, you go for rapier every time. It is the highest damage die and therefore has the largest damage potential of any finesse weapon. Most stick around a d4 or more commonly a d6. The rapier is the only one that pokes its head up to a d8 for its damage die. And as such has become a staple of every bard rogue and ranger that I play. I don't know if I'm ever going to make a character that deals less than a 1d8 of damage per hand again. There are exceptions. Personally, I don't think that I'm making those characters anymore, but there are certainly ways to really get your mileage out of those. Uh, We're going to be talking about some of those here in a little bit. And the rapier, by the way, is just as good whether you're using a shield or not. If you forgo the shield, you can use your offhand for somatic components for spells and things like that. Having a hand free in combat is never a bad thing, and neither is the rapier. Yes, hands down, rapier, great for dexterity-based characters. But if you are a strength-based character, I submit to you that the Warhammer is probably a better choice for two reasons. First, and let's go ahead and get this out of the way because it's probably going to come up more than once as we go through the different weapons, is because it deals bludgeoning damage. But Rob and Steve... Why is bludgeoning damage so important? Well, I'm glad you asked, listeners. If you didn't get enough of my numbers in the last episode, here's a few more. The stat sheet that we linked in our last episodes for damage types, which heretofore was fairly tailored towards spellcasters, now includes physical damage types as well. Slashing, piercing, and bludgeoning. Don't worry, we're not going to spend a whole episode on this because there's just not as many numbers to compare, and... They're not as exciting or swingy as the ones that we reviewed last time. Right. If you're interested in the tiny differences between some of these numbers, the link to that spreadsheet is back in the description of this episode for your convenience. However, there is one way that bludgeoning damage stands head and shoulders above its brethren, and that comes in the form of vulnerabilities. Right. While the gaps between the most and least resisted and the most and least immune of these types are actually quite small, the difference between how many creatures are vulnerable to these damage types is not quite as insignificant. Uh, There is only one creature in D&D that is vulnerable to slashing damage, going up to five that are vulnerable for piercing damage, but bludgeoning damage boasts 23 different creatures. Granted, All of these are less than 1%. So 
if you're looking for something that's going to be a, just a big game changer, you're not going to find it amongst the physical damage types. But with that being said, bludgeoning has over four times as many vulnerable creatures as piercing damage does. And a full 23 times as many creatures that are vulnerable to bludgeoning over slashing. So when given the option to take a Warhammer or a Longsword, all other things being equal, all my characters from here on out are going to be swinging Warhammers. Oh, and before anyone jumps me, I of course excluded creatures that were resistant to all three of the damage types from all of these. This is just standard slashing, piercing, and bludgeoning. Creatures that are resistant and vulnerable to all non-magic physical damage, we just went ahead and left those out. So as we continue down the list of weapons and which ones we prefer, we're going to be seeing bludgeoning damage coming up whenever other factors are identical or similar. The other reason that you should consider taking a Warhammer over a Rapier is that it has that versatile property. It's not the only weapon out there that has the versatile property, but it is the best one, and the property itself is quite important. Right. The versatile property in this case meaning that the weapon can be used in both one or two hands. But when it is used in two hands, it gets an increased damage die for those attacks. While simple weapons can only go from a d6 to a d8, martial weapons, such as the Warhammer, can move from a d8 to a d10. And versatile is arguably my favorite feature to look for in a weapon. Yeah, we'll get to mine in a minute, but versatile is incredibly useful. Having the option to trade protection or utility in combat for extra damage is great. I like having that option. Sometimes there's going to be something to do with that other hand that means that I need to keep it free. And sometimes I just need to put something down as fast as humanly possible or orcishly possible or dwarvishly possible. <laughs> you, you know what I'm trying to say. I know what you're trying to say. The versatile property to me is so useful because basically, unless you are using a shield or another weapon that is going to permanently take up that offhand, then you can use that higher damage die with effectively no penalties because using those weapons to get that larger damage die does not require you to hold it in two hands all the time. You don't have to hold it in two hands. You only have to use two hands to attack with it during your action. So if you have a spell that requires a hand free to make somatic components, something that you could use on, say, your bonus action, or even on your reaction if it's a spell like, say, shield or absorb elements, you can take that hand off of the weapon in order to cast those. And then when it's time to take your attack action, you just plant that hand right back on that sucker and get your d10 like you should have. So let's say you are a character that would normally use a shield, but this combat came at you unawares. That's okay. You've traded that plus two to your AC to a plus one to your average damage per round. And that feels pretty good. All other things being equal, if you were wielding, say, a flail instead of a warhammer, you wouldn't have that option. Gotcha. So the hand doesn't have to be glued to the weapon the entire time to get that extra damage die. It's free to come and go as long as it's not occupied by something else. Correct. Now, this is technically also true of two-handed melee weapons. We're just not talking about those yet. Well, then let's go ahead and talk about them. Ah, fair enough. If you want to get the most bang for your martial combatant buck, you need to be fighting with both hands, whether they're both on the same weapon or each holding a different weapon. So let's handle the big guys first. If you want 
to be holding the same weapon in both hands and get the best damage dice that D&D has to offer, what weapons are we looking at? What, what's the go-to? Well, if martial weapons are on the table and you're looking for a two-handed weapon, there are actually a lot of things to consider. For one, you could be using these versatile weapons. There are just better options if you know you're always going to be using two hands for these attacks. Because the damage doesn't just stop at 1d8 increasing to 1d10. You also have weapons that constantly deal a d12 of damage or 2d6 of damage. Of those, as a numbers person, I'll go ahead and tell you that the 2d6 is always better than the 1d12. There's only two weapons in the player's handbook that deal 2d6 damage, being the greatsword and the maul. The greatsword dealing slashing damage and the maul dealing bludgeoning damage and otherwise being pretty equivalent until you get into prices and weights, as Steve often likes to do. I do like to do that. <laughs> From a damage number standpoint, and in the efficacy of the damage type, we have to give it to the mall. Let's go to the mall <laughs> today. And even otherwise, <laughs> it's five times cheaper than the greatsword, so I know you're a mall fan. <gasps> Rob mentioned gold cost, guys. We're changing him. I don't really <laughs> care about the weight, because if I'm swinging a mall, I'm already going to be a strong character. I'm going to be maxing out my strength score. It doesn't matter that it's a couple pounds heavier. But I agree, that bludgeoning damage is just preferable to me now, as is saving 40 gold. I'm not going <laughs> to lie, that definitely factors in. And yes, as I said before, the 2d6 is better than the 1d12 weapons just because you cannot roll a 1 on 2d6. So your minimum damage is higher, your average damage is higher. Even though your maximum potential is the same, getting there is incredibly different. To say nothing of the fact that if you crit, those minimum numbers and those average numbers are going to become more and more significant. But so far, we've only been talking about weapons that can hit someone who is within five feet of you. That is not a limitation that you have to live by. Yeah, and we're not even talking about throne and range stuff yet. We'll get there. We'll get there. Guys, there's a lot of weapons to talk about here. <laughs> oh, Bessie, hold your horses. Since we're talking about two-handed weapons and hitting stuff farther away, I'm sure you're talking about poking people with your polearm and going for that reach weapon property. Correct. The reach weapon property means that you can hit people that are twice as far away. You can hit people that are 10 feet away from you instead of just people that are 5 feet away from you. There are, in D&D 5e, 5 weapons that have the reach property. On paper, 4 of them look pretty good, the wit being excluded because the damage type on it is just so low. Although it is the only reach weapon that has the finesse property. This is the lowest damage die of a melee martial weapon. I mean, it's the lowest damage die of any weapon in the game. If it, you get to roll, it's that low. Correct. You're just dealing dagger damage a little further without the option to throw it, so its maximum effective range is only 10 feet, and without the option to wield two like you would have with daggers. So to me, I would just never consider using a whip. Like, even on the character that I clearly based off of Indiana Jones... Didn't carry a whip. Hey, even Indiana Jones didn't really fight with the whip. He still pulled out a gun when it was an option. <laughs> <laughs> and now I have played characters that used guns, and they were fun. 
Now, of the ones that are remaining, the Lance has some special rules about it that makes it not ideal for everyday situations, leaving us with the Pike, the Halberd, and the Glaive, all of which deal 1d10 damage. The Pike deals piercing, the other two deal slashing. They're all heavy, they're all reach, and they're all two-handed. So, you remember how we mentioned sometimes you have to grasp at straws to get differences between the weapons? This is it. And, frankly, the pike is by far the most affordable, but is three times as heavy as the other two. Mm-hmm. And even on a strong character, that's heavier than some armor. That That's just ridiculously heavy. It is the heaviest weapon in the game, tied with a heavy crossbow. Almost twice as heavy as the second place. But the glaive and the halberd are the exact same weapon. That's right. I mean, actually the exact same. There's not a difference in any category between these two weapons. Yeah, kind of weird that they actually made the same weapon twice and just gave it different names. So I would have just put a butt backslash and like pretended it was something else, <laughs> or like did the katana things. Like this is we're gonna call it a katana, but it's really a longsword, just so you know. Yes, and I know I can hear you out there th- saying, Steve, but it's four times cheaper and deals the same damage die, and you guys don't care about weight that much, right? Well, there's a line. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another thing that you should know about the pike as opposed to the glaive and halberd. If you are playing with pole arms with these heavy two-handed reach weapons, it's probably because you're looking to take a very awesome feat called Polearm Master. The Polearm Master has two bullet points, both of which are very good for you. The funny thing about them is that both of these bullet points specifically work with glaives and halberds and a couple of other weapons, but they do not work with pikes. I do not know why it was designed to work that way, but that's the way it's written. So pikes are empirically worse than the other two, even if they are a little bit cheaper. I gotta say, D&D 5e does not make a lot of concessions to practicality in my mind, but maybe this is one of the few. Pikes are meant to be these enormous weapons meant to stop infantry and cavalry charges. They're too long to wield, really. You just kind of put them in front of you and hope someone is kind enough to run <laughs> into them. You, the point of the polearm master, at least one of those two bullet points, is to whip around with the butt of the weapon and smack your opponent. You aren't doing that with a pike. It's true. Uh, and I think pikes should even have been a little bit longer than these other polearms. Yes! Uh, but... Since they're not, uh, and you know what? If they had a 15 foot reach, this would be a very different conversation. But I definitely understand why they didn't give any of the weapons in the game a 15 foot reach. But the way that is currently designed, the only pike that needs to be in your game is Ashley Johnson's cleric. But um, tis. But um, tis. <laughs> Scanlan can love all the pikes he wants, but you can leave them unpurchased at the store. All right. So, two handed weapons. Maul if you don't care about reach and just want to deal as much damage as possible. And if you want to poke things from a little farther away, get a halberd or a glaive, whichever one thematically fits best in your backpack, because it does not matter. So moving on to those of us, or more often in this case, those of you, Rob, who would like to dual wield weapons, because I know that the dual wielder feat was one of your top five. I like this feat, and I like this fighting style. I like... It's literally a fighting style. It is. 
I like the mental image, of course, of someone just wading into battle, Cloud Strife style, with an oversized weapon and wailing on people. I also like the Antonio Banderas, Errol Flynn motif of casually and almost nonchalantly fending off your enemies. But I really like the image of someone casting caution to the wind, running in without a shield, maybe even unarmored, holding two weapons above their head ready to just bash the brains in of as many baddies as possible. And that is what dual wielding is for. And to dual wield, you need light weapons. So whether you're a Viking Berserker or Legolas or Drista Worden, your options are going to be fairly limited until you take this feat. For, but I will say that light is actually one of the more common weapon traits in 5e. It shows up a lot. It gives you a lot of different options for what you want to dual wield. Unfortunately, they all deal 1d4 or 1d6 damage, so they're on the lower end. But when you get two of them, as we said before, 2d6 is better than 1d8. True. And you know what? That's what the dual wielder feat that you mentioned is for. That lets you grab non-light weapons and wade into combat with them. But let's just stick to what anyone can dual wield. And that's one of the nice things. A lot of your light options, your dual wield weapon types, are simple. Meaning that any person from any class has the ability to dual wield something. As a matter of fact, every class out there is proficient in daggers. Which is why they are the quintessential and most equipped weapon across all players in D&D. I mean... Here's the thing, the only bad thing that you can say about the dagger is that 1d4 damage die. Otherwise, it's the ideal choice. You can use it with your strength, you can use it with your dexterity, you can use it in melee, you can use it at range because it has the throne property, and you can use it in one or each hand. The versatility on the dagger is bar none. But it's not my favorite weapon to wield in both hands when going into combat, because of that d4 damage die. That honor goes to the short sword. Right. Finesse allows you to do strength or dexterity, and it gives you access to a 1d6 damage die as opposed to the dagger's 1d4. It's still pretty cheap at only 10 gold, still only weighs 2 pounds. All characters who have access to martial weapons have them available, as well as a couple of other exceptions, like monks, weirdly enough, are proficient in short swords. That they are. And because it is a little friendlier to the different classes out there, as well as the fact that it is both lighter and cheaper than its cousin the Scimitar, which is otherwise identical to it, Short Sword wins the day for me. Right. Well, whose idea was making the Scimitar, right? It deals 1d6 slashing damage and it costs 25 gold. It's basically just a status symbol. It's the same guy that made the glaive after making the halberd and the same guy that made the trident after making the spear. Just somebody was filling a quota. Well, no. It's empirically worse because, as a matter of fact, there is a simple weapon that deals 1d6 slashing damage. It only costs 5 gold. It is still light and it adds the throne property back that we used to have with daggers. Ah, uh, yes. The hand axe trades off that finesse property that the short sword had and gets rid of that requirement for martial proficiency and gains the ability to huck it at your enemies at short range. Right. The throne property is actually pretty fun because it turns your melee weapons into a pseudo-ranged weapon. 
Ranged weapons are unique in that they have to use your dexterity modifier for attack rolls and damage unless they also have the finesse property. But the hand axe gives you the option to throw something over a short distance using your strength. In this case, 20 feet normal range, and then another 40 feet up to 60 if you're willing to take that throw at disadvantage. To me, there's never a reason to use the scimitar. Because if you're using your dexterity, you can take the much cheaper short sword no disadvantage and it's actually lighter which just blows my mind and if you're not using dexterity you can do the same damage and the same damage type weighing less for much cheaper again in this form of a hand axe and gain this throne property so for me scimitars are one of the weapons that are just right out (laughs) (laughs) that's true strike of light weapons yeah so let's talk about those thrown weapons i made a character in a game that you ran for us there in mist rover my elf fighter as a thrown weapon specialist. And he kept hand axes and daggers on hand. Uh, He was both strong and dexterous, and he wanted to fight with a weapon in both hands. At all times, he wanted to be able to throw that weapon if need be, and I was able to flip between the bigger damage die or a lot more ammunition with (laughs) all the daggers that he kept on a bandolier around his chest. Dagger, dagger, dagger. Yes, exactly. And... That's fun. I would argue that the hand axe may be the best thrown weapon in terms of damage output if you've got one in both hands. I still may say that the dagger is the best thrown weapon, period, just because everybody can use it. And it's great to be able to whip off an extra attack with a bonus action, no matter what ability score you're fighting with. But neither of them has the best single damage for a thrown weapon nor the greatest range. Throwing weapons is a weird one. Like we said, the dagger is a weapon that literally any class can use. And there's another weapon that literally any class can use in the form of the quarterstaff, which was going to be one of my picks for one of the best weapons in the game because everyone's proficient in it. It's a D6 simple weapon that is versatile and goes up to a D8. But Rob brought to my attention that there is another Simple weapon that deals a d6 of damage and has the versatile property, which is empirically better because it adds this throne property that we've been discussing. That being the spear. The spear has only really recently come into my radar as being kind of the jack-of-all-trades weapon. It works well in melee, it works well with one or two hands, and it works being thrown, and you have access to it if you're any kind of class that has any business holding a weapon. Yeah, that's funny, because Leonidas has been using it for years. (laughs) (laughs) The ancient Greeks made this thing famous, man. I mean, you know, we're only just now coming around on it. So yeah, it kind of checks all the boxes. The only fault with the spear is dex wielders shouldn't touch it. But it is great at everything that it does, and it does a lot. It's kind of the bard of weapons. It kind of does <laughs> oh it all. God, it's just... Is that going to be a thing? Are we going to start saying that things are the bards of things? <laughs> I, I, I hope not, but we'll see. But it does everything. It just doesn't do any single thing better than anyone else. And that's kind of a problem with thrown weapons in general. Depending on what kind of character you are, your perception of what thrown weapon is the best may change. If you're a dex wielder, it's going to be the dagger. If you're a dual wielder, it's going to be the hand axe. If you need that versatility, it's going to be the spear. And if you need range or started the game as a paladin, you know how great javelins can be. 
Right, the javelin being the non-versatile little brother of the spear, which, as you said, was a go-to for my paladins as a backup weapon for whenever they couldn't get into range of something. But for some reason, I looked at the javelin because it was one of my offered starting weapons, but I never once looked at the spear. And yet there it is. It has worse range, sure, but in all other respects, it's better. But you know what really sold me, Rob, on spears and javelins was underwater combat. Ah, uh, man. So I've been dungeon mastering for eight years, and I have almost successfully avoided underwater combat for eight <laughs> years. Uh, you were involved in famously one of my few underwater combats that I ran, just because so few weapons work down there. And if a player finds themselves in that position with the wrong kind of weapon, they're probably not trying to fight. They're trying to get out of the water. <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't have stayed in there as long as I did. But just for those of you who don't understand the rules for underwater combat, it basically boils down to if you don't have a swim speed then making melee attacks against other creatures are going to have disadvantage. You're gonna have a bad time. You're gonna have a bad time. You're gonna have a disadvantage on all your attack rolls unless those weapons are from a very short list. Those being daggers, javelins, short swords, spears, and tridents. Pokey weapons. Yes, and these are mostly weapons that have the thrown property and all weapons that have the piercing damage type. Because swinging things that would deal slashing damage, and especially swinging things that are hefty and unwieldy, like bludgeoning weapons, are going to be a problem underwater. A maul is effectively an anchor underwater. <laughs> that's true. An anchor would make a great maul. Maybe that's a yeah. character concept. Oh, it's Nautilus <laughs> from League of Legends. There that's you go. <laughs> While we're talking about these, by the way, I don't know if I have implied it earlier, but the trident doesn't make sense to me. Oh, yeah, we haven't discussed the trident at all, but you are correct. It's on my list of never picks. <laughs> the trident's a martial weapon. The spear is a simple weapon. Otherwise, they are the exact same in terms of damage and weapon properties, but the trident is heavier for the sake of those extra prongs, and it's more expensive because it's fancy. So why would you ever take the trident unless you just really wanted to be Neptune or Triton. <laughs> you never would. This is the part, listener, where we're just going to stare at you for a second or two to make sure that you never do. I hope that the the weight of this glare is is really coming through the microphones right now. I'm, I'm sure oh, it, it is. is. Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. They can feel it. Mm -hmm. Can you feel it now, Mr. Krabs? <laughs> uh, the audio-only medium. Okay, glad we got that out of the way. We're not taking Trident. Uh, so, that is just underwater melee attacks. Underwater ranged attacks have some different rules. Ranged attacks, like the thrown weapons, have a normal range and an extended range. And in underwater combat, any attack that is made outside of the normal range is an automatic miss. I hate things that are automatic when they're not good for me. <laughs> And against a target in normal range, it is still at disadvantage unless that weapon is a crossbow, a net, or a thrown weapon. Weirdly enough, every thrown weapon works, even hand axes, which I would think would not do great underwater. <laughs> and light hammers. Oh, God. Light hammers underwater. Uh, but mechanically, all those light hammer throwers out there, 
you're going to be just fine. You can Thor and Mjolnir all you want underwater, no problem. Okay, correction time. So, the rules for underwater combat don't actually allow all weapons with the thrown property to function normally underwater. Rather, a weapon that is thrown like a javelin, not a weapon that is thrown like a javelin, is the way that that sentence should be read in the player's handbook. Wizards of the Coast actually goes on to list the four weapons that qualify in this regard, so it would have been a lot easier if they had just listed the weapons and not thrown in a confusing sentence, even though they did punctuate it properly and we just misread it. We're not taking our confused statements out of the episode, we just wanted to come in quickly and confirm what the actual rules say. Alright, let's get back to it. I, I'm, I'm holding back from talking about how much I hate the net, and just saying that if you know you're playing in a campaign where underwater combat is on the table, keep a javelin or preferably a spear somewhere on your character sheet, even if it's not your primary weapon, you're going to have a bad time without those weapons. They're your preferred weapon in these very niche, specific situations. You know what I'd really like to have underwater is a crossbow, because they just have a much better normal range. Yeah, but when that shark swims up to you with its really quick swim speed, you're going to be sad if you have a crossbow. Oh, that's true. And uh, to be fair, I did use a spear in my one underwater combat, and I had a pretty good time with it. Uh, but you know what? This is probably a good way to move into talking about ranged weapons. There's a lot less of them, and there's a lot more clear winners. Guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, as we said before, if your DM allows you to have guns, just just take guns. Just take guns. I mean, they won't work underwater, but, t you know. Guns. That's what, you're, that's what your javelin's for. <laughs> take guns. I don't think there's a mechanical reason that says they won't work underwater. It's just common sense interfering again. Well, there is that rule for underwater combat that if the target is within normal range, you would have disadvantage unless it is specifically a crossbow net or thrown weapon. Oh, okay, you're right, you're right, sorry. While you can throw a gun. I was just thinking of wet gunpowder. I thought that was the re that was our problem. Oh, no, we've got, we've got other problems, apparently. Other problems like lists. So, let's talk a little bit about these ranged weapons, starting with the simple ranged weapons. Guess what? There's only four. Slings, darts, short bows, and light crossbows. Let's go ahead and roll, rule two of those out. Don't use a sling or a dart. Yeah, slings are only fun if you took magic stone and are trying to equip a town full of peasants to defend themselves. And darts are basically worse daggers. They don't have the light property, and that's kind of damning. And they can't be used to make melee attacks. They're really cheap, and even at five copper a pop, it's not worth it. Just invest in a two gold dagger and you'll be happier for the rest of your adventuring career. Yeah, I was going to say that your Theron character would have actually done well with these, but you're right, the fact that you can't have them in both hands may limit your options a bit. How do they not have the light property when they weigh one quarter of the weight of a dagger that does have the light property. They are four times as light and not light. <laughs> Interesting choices were made. Maybe it was for game balance. Maybe if they let you have two darts and two... I can barely say this with a straight face. Yeah, I know. Okay, so you're not using slings or darts. So if you aren't a cool martial character, then you're looking at crossbows, specifically light crossbows, and the short bow. In, in my mind, the distinction here 
really boils down to whether or not your class is going to be able to make more than one attack per round. I think that's pretty fair. The short boat deals 1d6 piercing damage, but if you have multiple attacks, you can make them with a short bow. Whereas a light crossbow deals 1d8 piercing damage, and I really want to like it more, but it does have the loading property. And for those who don't know, the loading property specifically states that if you can make more than one attack per round, you can't. <laughs> it's kind of bad. I don't like being told no in D&D, and I don't like telling people no in D&D. I like being told and telling people yes. And the loading property is one of the few mechanics in D&D that just gives you a flat no. You, and you have to take feats to overcome it. It makes me feel like I'm playing Pathfinder again. Right, well, that's what D&D is doing with the crossbows. They're saying yes, if, or no, but. You can make extra attacks if you take the crossbow expert's feat, because that removes the loading property of any crossbow that is in your hands, allowing you to take advantage of that 1d8 damage as many times as you otherwise would with a shortbow. So if you can make more than one attack per round, short bow. If you take a feat or just want to deal as much damage with one attack, you go with the light crossbow and get that sweet, sweet 1d8. If you have a martial weapon proficiency on your character sheet, though, you can step up to the longbow and get that 1d8 without that loading property and snag the longest ranged weapon in the game. Whereas the shortbow boasts a mere normal range of 80 and a long range of 320 feet, the longbow boosts that up to 150 feet normal range and 600 feet extended range. Pretty much double. All right, this, we're getting to the point where this almost doesn't matter at most tables. But in some combat it will, and you'll be glad that you have it. Are we going to talk about how a longbow costs 50 gold yeah. for a big branch? <laughs> Like, people in England were making these for themselves. Which makes it tied for the second most expensive weapon in the game. That is dumb. Wizards, that's dumb. Along with great swords and heavy crossbows. Heavy crossbows, by the way, also boast a greater range than most ranged weapons, with a normal of 100 and an extended range of 400. But they increase over standard bows, once again going all the way up to a 1d10 piercing damage, making it the highest damage that you can do at range with a weapon in the game. Now, both the longbow and the heavy crossbow both have the heavy property, which means that gnomes and halflings that want to use them are kind of out of luck. Yeah, I'm, I'm well documented as enjoying the little guys in D&D. So while we've talked about most of the other weapon properties as being choices that you may or may not want to undertake, if you're playing a small character, you can't handle heavy weapons. And there's not a feat you can take to overcome that, sad to say. And Rob doesn't like being told no. Yeah, so heavy weapons take a bit of a hit from me, but there's no arguing that they do the job. If you are something of medium size, which you probably are. Now, as opposed to, say, the sling or the dart, which we mentioned earlier, the short bow, the light crossbow, the long bow, and the heavy crossbow all take two hands to wield. But they're great options if you have a dexterity-based character who wants to deal some damage downrange. But there is an option for those of you who want to deal some healthy damage at a respectable range with only one hand. Or I should say with only one hand crossbow. Because that's what it is. It's a hand crossbow. <laughs> hand crossbows basically give you the opportunity to dual wield javelins. 
You can have one in each hand, they have the same range, and they have the same damage die. Primary difference being that the hand crossbow is a dex-based weapon, where the javelin is a strength-based weapon. And that the javelin can be used in melee. And the hand crossbow has the loading property, unless you take that feat to get around it. But my favorite thing about the hand crossbow, Rob, is that it costs 75 gold. Oh, so affordable. <laughs> it is actually the most expensive weapon in the game. And you think, Steve, you've been coming down really hard on all these weapons that have a high gold cost. Why would something like the hand cross that is the most expensive weapon in the game, why would that excite you? I genuinely just thought you were being sarcastic. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually not, because I'm a paladin main. And that probably doesn't make any sense to you really right now, Rob or listeners. But here's the funny thing. Paladins and also fighters get to start with their choice of two martial weapons. So what I like to do personally is start my campaigns with two hand crossbows. If I start with two hand crossbows, according to the rules in the player's handbook, I can then take them to any shop and expect to sell those at half price. Meaning that if I sell both of them, I can effectively start the game with an extra 75 gold. 75 gold is so much, Rob. That is enough for me to buy my preferred weapon, being a Warhammer, and a shield, which would cost combined 25 gold, and have an extra 50 gold left over. 50 gold is enough to turn around and buy a great sword on top of that, which is the second most expensive weapon in the game. I could outfit myself for what I could sell two hand crossbows for. So... So your level one character, who's just starting out from his small, small adventuring town to go out into the wider world, is going to take Grandpa's two hand crossbows <laughs> that he used when he was adventuring that have so much age and stories in them and take them to the nearest Dollar General and sell them for 75 gold <laughs> to buy some other meaningless roughshod weapons, you monster. Okay, you know what? Those <laughs> weapons will make a name for themselves during my adventuring career. Uh, I'm, I'm coming down on it. I, that is not how I think when I'm creating a character and picking my first weapons. It's it's just an effective... If you can take that character and have them survive till they get to the first town, they can be rich. They can buy some stuff. Wait until you come into my next campaign and the next merchant you meet is like, mm, I don't really have a need for hand crossbows. I don't know. I don't need to buy those off of you. <laughs> do, but I mean, do you realize that if you're proficient in medium armor, which, you know, of course, fighters and things are, and I don't think that they would need, I think fighters and paladins both start with scale mail, but if they didn't, that's enough for you to buy scale mail for another member of your party. Just outright. After buying your preferred weapon and a shield. <laughs> It's just a lot of gold. You could also buy ring mail for that. If you sold those two items and you were fine with just making it work with your other weapons that you get as a starting fighter or paladin, that's enough to buy chain mail. It's just a lot of money. And I, I like buying a bunch of weapons and things early on in games. So I have a bunch of different options. Now, I ain't saying Steve's a gold digger. <laughs> Between you and me, gold is the best thing in your backpack. All right. And I don't know if we've said this before or not, but... All of these weapon preferences fly out the window when a magic weapon is on the table. Yeah, if your DM puts one of these out there as like some loot that drops from a random encounter or something that you find at the bottom of a lake, perhaps being handed out by, what do they call it in Monty Python? A watery tart. Yeah, perhaps having been handed to you by some watery tart. 
that's the weapon that you're going to be using from now on because we didn't actually go into numbers, but a lot of things are resistant to non-magical physical damage. A lot of things. But these are all really helpful so that if you go to a magic weapon shop, you know what sort of plus one or plus two weapon to look for. Right. Dungeons and Dragons kind of expects martial characters of a certain level to have a magical weapon. Otherwise, they're going to start having a bad time and really falling behind in terms of damage and not doing their job or having as much fun in the party. So whatever you get, that's the thing you use. And maybe it's not your preferred weapon, but you always need to have it handy. But as you said, if you have the opportunity to quest for a magic weapon that is up your alley, you hope it is the Maul, or you hope it is a Halberd, or you hope it is a Rapier, depending on what sort of character you're playing. All right, well, that takes us through all of the categories, but let's talk about a couple of particular instances where there might be some extra things to consider when you're choosing your weapon of choice. I think the big one on this list is rogues. Rogues have this class feature called sneak attack. Sneak attack. It's basically their whole shtick, and it only works with certain weapons. I dare say, correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, weapon choice matters more to a rogue than any other class. Mm, I don't know. Monks have such a limited list already. I would say that making the optimal choice there may be... No probably as impactful uh yeah well hey if you're a monk what even if you don't have a weapon you can still do your job rogues can't use their primary class feature if they don't have a good weapon okay that's fair and the first thing that you need to consider is are you going to be making melee sneak attacks or ranged sneak attacks uh ranged is better you're safer ranged is better <laughs> rogues have all these features to hide and run and get away uh, you need to be using those <laughs> because you don't have the hit points or the armor class to not use those so if you can do that damage from 5 feet away from somebody or from 30 feet away from somebody pick the 30 feet it is nice to be able to deal damage with impunity right? you don't need to be up front to get your damage in so why would you be and really, the only answer to that is for a second chance. If you are a rogue who wants to have a weapon in each hand so that you get to make two attacks, because otherwise you don't get to make two attacks as a rogue unless you multi-class. Oh, right, yeah, because rogues don't get extra attack. Right. So the only way you're getting two attacks in there is if you have a weapon in each hand and are either in melee or pretty close to melee hucking daggers at people. So ranged preferable, but there is a reason why you want, might want to get up in the mix. So, let's take a look at the weapons that Sneak Attack can apply to, and then narrow the list down from there. Okay, that list includes the finesse and ranged weapons, meaning that you can use daggers, crossbows, darts, short bows, slings, rapiers, scimitars, short swords, and whip. Is that it? Is that already? Is that, are we already done? Technically speaking, I think you could use a blowgun, but why would you? <laughs> I mean, technically speaking, I guess you could use a net, but no, that would you'd have to, it deal, has to damage deal damage. With it. Yeah. Oh, but we do have yes, blowguns and longbows. So, chances are your go-to is going to be a short bow. Since you're only going to get one attack anyway, this is a good opportunity to step up to that heavy crossbow. 
if you are playing a class or a multi-class that gets access to that. Uh, rogues don't come with that baked in, but if you can manage it, you can pump your damage up a little bit. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, I guess you could play, say, an elf rogue, because then you would get proficiency in longbows, but other than that, you're right, these are your options. Of these options, because rogues only get one attack, I am inclined, as someone who believes that sneak attacks should be dealt from range, to grab myself a crossbow, because they just have higher damage than short bows. The reason that we said earlier that you would take a short bow is if you get to make more attacks and rogues don't. Would you agree? Yeah, I see where you're coming from there. Uh, it's also part of my fantasy bias is I'm, I'm not excited by the thought of my character wielding a crossbow. But I should probably <laughs> get over that for an extra one point of average damage every turn. Even your gnomes and halflings can use a light crossbow. Now, if you're hoping to be a rogue with a little bit of versatility or one that wants to have the option to get up into the mix if it arises, while a rapier is a good option and is the highest damage die that you're going to have the opportunity to use in melee and still get your sneak attack, honestly, I, th I think you're probably better off with the dagger. The option of attacking twice with them for a total of 2d4 instead of 1d8 is a higher damage. It's twice the potential to crit, and critting on something that gets a sneak attack is hexy, my friend. <laughs> and you have the opportunity to throw them at short range. Now, if you know that you're not going to be throwing and you prefer to be that rogue that gets up close and personal with people, trade your daggers out for short swords. It has a higher damage die. Why not? Speaking of short swords, let's go ahead and talk about those monk weapons. Right. Monk weapons are simple melee weapons that do not have two-handed or heavy qualities, which is not many, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, there's, there's no simple melee weapon that has the heavy property. Not one. Really weird that they decided to throw that in there. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they were planning on adding some more weapons later on down the line or something. I don't know. I, I get the feeling, actually, that very little forethought went into those first three books. <laughs> That's and a whole actually, different conversation. There's only one simple weapon that has the two-handed property, that being the Great Club. It kind of makes me wonder why they said short swords and simple weapons that aren't Great Clubs. Yeah, it's a, it's not, it's an odd waste of ink on their part, but, you know, <laughs> who are we to judge? So that, that comes down to uh, short swords, clubs, daggers, hand axes, javelins, light hammers, a mace, interestingly. That's, that seems like an odd choice. Quarterstaffs, sickles, and spears. You know what, guys? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and save you some time. There are two monk weapons, and they're short swords <laughs> and spears. If you want something in both hands, it's short swords. If you don't want something in both hands, take a spear. <laughs> Reason being, most of the other options on this list are kind of inferior weapons just in general. Uh, the exception being the daggers and the hand axes, which work great as short-range options. But as a monk, you don't want short-range options. You can't use your flurry of blows, one of your key features as a monk, unless you are adjacent to an enemy. You want to be in your enemy's face, so short swords and spears, depending on whether you want to use your bonus action for an attack or your flurry of blows, is probably going to be the distinction that helps you decide between the two, or if you ever want the option to throw that spear. 
The second short sword would really only come in handy, I guess, if you've ran out of key points, which is something that you can easily do at low levels. But if you still have some key points and you can still throw out that flurry of blows, you're going to be a lot happier with the spear. And the reason is because you can switch from that d6 to the d8 for your attack and then still hold your spear in one hand while you flurry of blows with the other. Hell, it's the flurry of blows. It doesn't necessarily have to come from your fists. You can kick for those or headbutt. Or elbow strike. Ah, fair enough. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm th just thinking of that guy from Fist of the North Star or Pegasus from Saint Seiya. <laughs> you know, something like that. Someone who just throws out a whole bunch of punches. For some reason, that's the image of the flurry of blows that I have in my head. Omaiwa. Moshinderu. Being able to turn that spear attack into a D8 is pretty important because with your extra attack, you can make two d8 attacks and while your unarmed strikes are eventually going to eclipse weapon damage as you level up as a monk your unarmed strikes start out as a d4 so having a spear at early levels is an advantage also the whole thing about how you can throw them sometimes that's also yeah, pretty cool yeah. instead of <laughs> you're not just throwing punches now <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can't <laughs> uh, anyway the other qualifier that i have here is for actually a subclass which is the Hexblade Warlock. The Hexblade Warlock has a couple of restrictions on what sort of weapons will work with their subclass abilities. All right, so we're moving into Steve's territory here because Rob has played one Warlock in eight years, and he was <laughs> that was before Hexblade came out. So I have not put a lot of personal thought into this class. Well, I play a lot of Hexblade Warlocks. It's, it's a very frequent multiclass for me. Uh, my paladins have done it. Uh, my most recent bard character is also a Hexblade Warlock because I want to be able to use my charisma for my rapier attacks. So, yeah, that's what we're doing. Oh, it's it's good. And I have a lot of people playing them in my games. They're just people I trust to know the class better than me and play it correctly. <laughs> Aw, you flatter me. So, anyway, I mean, I mentioned the charisma. What I'm talking about is that as a Hex Warrior, which is your first level Hexblade feature, one of two, actually, they're both really good, it states that whenever you finish a long rest, you can touch one weapon that you are proficient with and that lacks the two-handed property. When you attack with that weapon, you use your charisma modifier instead of strength or dex for attack and damage rolls. And that ability lasts the whole time until you finish a long rest again when you can repeat this process. Now, as a Hex Warrior, you gain proficiency in all martial weapons, which we've already stated are the good weapons. <laughs> so you get to make a very interesting choice here. Now, it does have to be a weapon that lacks the two-handed property. So all those pole arms, as well as great swords and mauls, are out. But that leaves open all of those great versatile weapons that we were mentioning earlier. It sure does. Notably, the Warhammer, which I've been harping on a little bit lately as my new favorite weapon. Uh, granted, my bard is currently using it on a rapier because that's what he already had in his backpack. And my paladin is using it on a longsword because, again, that's what they already owned. But next time they go to the shop, might have to pick up a Warhammer because I like that D10 damage die. And there's no reason to withhold it from myself except for the fact that I'm constantly using shields as all my characters. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I've played with Hexblades wielding greatswords before. Is there? Does that change as you go on? Uh, it actually does. So at level 3, you get to pick your Pact Boon. And 
the hex blade actually has a feature specifically that says if you pick the pact of the blade boon not only do you get your normal pact of the blade features it also removes that restriction on what weapon you can make your hex weapon so you can now take it and apply it to your maul or your greatsword or weirdly enough your longbow <laughs> and be a ranged hex blade it's actually pretty cool ranged hex blade why would you not just cast eldritch blast uh, well, and that's that's the thing. <laughs> because you, you would probably rather cast Eldritch Blast. And now Blast. you see the conundrum. Well, it, maybe it is because you would like to take advantage of Hexblade's curse. Like I said, both of your first level features of the Hexblade are pretty good. The other one is called Hexblade's Curse, and it allows you to crit on a 19 and a 20. It gives you some extra hit points if the target of your curse dies, and you get your proficiency bonus as extra damage on every damage roll. So... You know, I don't know if that's quite as good as Agonizing Blast, but it's pretty good. Okay, if we talk very much more about Hexblade Warlocks, you're going to owe me at least 10 minutes of talking about uh, how great lore bards are. So. I'll, I'll, you know what? You can just have your own episode. <laughs> <laughs> lore bards are the best bards, uh, but you're not going to steal me away from College of Eloquence. We'll, we'll have to argue about that some other time. There, there is a new bard that has uh, kind of stolen my interest, but I'm not sure that it's better i'm just more excited about it and yet i passed up the opportunity to play that bard at college in the wednesday night the wild beyond the witchlight campaign in favor of just playing college of swords which i regret all the time but it was a thematic choice Are we talking the uh, the college of spirits bard the one that's basically a wild magic sorcerer it's it's not exactly that but yes there's there's so much versatility in it even if you trade a little control for it yeah i i hear I hear what you're saying, and all I hear is chance. <laughs> <laughs> and I just prefer to mitigate my chance in my game where you roll dice most of the time. <laughs> this is a little off topic, but I love getting handed stuff in D&D that it's not obvious how it's useful and finding a way to make it useful. And it seems like that's what the College of Spirits Bard does better than any other, any other subclass in the game. Weird that you're not a min-maxer or a power gamer. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess with power gamers, there are empirically better choices. Maybe that'll be the topic of an episode sometime. Tell me if you're interested about that. Not you, Rob, the listener. I was about to say. <laughs> I know where you stand on power gaming. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the different weapons in this game. We've talked about what makes them different from one another, which ones deserve your attention more so than others, and which ones particular classes should be especially interested in. And we've talked a little bit about which ones deserve to be ignored entirely. But since we're here talking about weapons, and because it probably won't fit in any future episodes, let's go ahead and handle the real stinkers in the weapons list. Ooh, yeah, can we complain more about useless weapons? <laughs> All right, where do you want to start? Okay, let me go ahead and cover a few that are not actually useless, but that I just think are a little bit outshone. For me, that would be the martial weapons that deal a D8 of damage, but are not versatile. Because I just, I just don't know why you would pick these things. There's not a significant gold savings here, or really a significant weight savings. They just don't have the stuff that these other weapons do. Yeah, it's just very odd that you could pick something with added utility. Why would you choose to not do that? <laughs> so, in my book, the battle axe, the longsword, and the warhammer 
are all pretty solid choices because they all deal a D8 of damage and they all have the versatile property. On the other hand, I give the Morningstar zero stars. The flail gets a fail, and I recommend not picking the war pick. That that was actually pretty good. Did you come up with that on the fly, or were you working on that? Uh, I mean, I wrote it down myself. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'll give you credit. I thought that was clever. <laughs> Thanks. I, I don't know why you're so surprised. Uh, yes, you do. You just don't want to admit it to yourself. I'll give the war pick some extra points because it is the cheapest way to get a 1d8 in one hand. But I will take some properties, some traits with my d8 martial weapons. Thank you very much. Yeah, I agree. They're, these these weapons just don't impress, and, and that's sort of damning, right? There's not a reason to take them. If these were simple weapons and they had martial big brothers that were versatile, I would understand. But no, they're martial weapons that are immediately outshone by similar weapons. Now, if you know that your left hand is never going to have anything else but a shield and you feel pretty confident that it will always have a shield there and you'll never be caught unawares, then in that case, sure, grab your war pick. But I mean, a war pick costs five gold and a battle axe costs 10. And then at some point in the future, you might fall ass backwards into a D10 of damage. Worth it. Worth the five gold investment in my book. All right, my turn. Weapons that get very easily outshone by something because it has a property that they don't. The club and the sickle. I can make a case for just about every other weapon in the simple melee weapons category, except for these two. They both deal a d4 of damage. They both have the light property. They can be dual wielded. But because the light hammer exists, they're both worthless. Because the light hammer can be dual-wielded and can be thrown. Let alone the fact that the dagger is sitting there at the same damage die and has the thrown property and has the finesse property. Even the somewhat inferior light hammer beats out the sickle and the club. Right, and consider the fact that even the light hammer is outshone by the hand axe because it deals a d6 of damage instead of a d4 and still maintains that light and throne property at the same range. Even if you take the silver medal with the light hammer, there's just no point in ever taking the bronze. <laughs> there's some real standouts in the simple weapons category that are just empirically better. And those are the daggers, depending on what you want to do with them, the hand axes, and the spear. I will give mention to the quarterstaff. The quarterstaff looks like it would lose out to the spear in every regard because it misses that throne property and is otherwise the same. And when you can take both of them, it is. But some classes are proficient in staffs that can't use spears, and you can't cast shillelagh on a spear. And every class in the game is proficient in quarterstaffs. It's one of a few weapons that is that way, but it is the one with the highest damage potential that is available to every class. That said, if, if your class can take the spear, just take the spear. Moving on from that to another clearly bad choice, I'm going to go ahead and throw the net out there. <laughs> are you, are you, do you have jokes for all of these? or? Nope, nope, just, just as they come to me. The net is just problematic. It's unforgivably bad. 
my my face is in my hands, guys, <laughs> and you can't see it. It's this is just my natural reaction to talking about the net. Let's let's not even worry about the fact that it does no damage because I mean, heck, why would a net? Let's not even talk about its special properties, which are really bad. I'll let Rob have it then. Let's just talk about the fact that it is a thrown weapon with a range of five and an extended range of 15. Why they made a distinction here, I do not know. Because as we previously stated, a ranged weapon attack that is made within five feet has disadvantage already. Which means that if you throw this weapon within its normal range, it still has disadvantage. They made the mistake of making this a martial ranged weapon. I think there's historical precedent, and certainly Hollywood precedent, for a net being used in melee to, like, trip up your opponents. And if it were, then you would have an opportunity to make an attack with a net that wasn't at disadvantage. As it stands, it has to use your dexterity, and it is always at disadvantage. Hold on, I don't think we emphasize that enough. It is always at disadvantage. Even underwater, which is one of the places that it is clearly supposed to be used because it does not receive disadvantage when you're underwater. Weirdly enough, it is the same disadvantage underwater (laughs) as it is within 5 feet, as it is within 15 feet. I don't know why they bothered to specify any of this stuff. It's, It's even listed as an exception, and it's still at disadvantage. It is... Oh, it's bad. But, hey, at least it's super cool when you finally get that disadvantaged attack to land, right? No. (laughs) This is the worst part about it to me. Even if I was always doing it at disadvantage, if it did something cool, maybe it would be worth it. But it don't. That's the thing. So, if you are hit by a net, if you are the size that can be affected by a net at all, you are restrained until you are freed. And granted, restrained is a pretty good condition. If you are not a spellcaster, the number of ways that you have to restrain an enemy are pretty limited. It stops your opponent from moving, attack rolls against them have advantage, and attack rolls from that creature have disadvantage, and they also have disadvantage on deck saves. Pretty good. Sadly, you have to hit their armor class at disadvantage, and when you do, even if they get tripped up in this, you've used your action to make this happen. And it's very likely that on that creature's turn, they're going to use their action to reverse their situation. Because all it takes is a DC 10 strength check. A lot of creatures out there can do this without even trying to free themselves or just deal five slashing damage to it. It's not that hard. Five slashing damage is so easy and that will free the creature without harming it, ending that effect and destroying the net removing the possibility of you ever being able to use this again. Also, there's an even worse part of this special feature, which says that when you use an action, bonus action, or reaction to make an attack with the net, you can make only one attack regardless of the number of attacks that you can normally make. So you're also taking a penalty to do this. This is worse than the loading property on ranged weapons. Right, this is... (laughs) You can't take a feat to be better with a net! Plus, when you do, they can use one of their attacks to deal that five slashing damage, get up, run away, and slash one of your teammates. <laughs> I don't. It's just really bad. Plus, plus, Rob, do you realize that this is basically worse than just grappling them yourself? <laughs> the only well, thing that it's like the only thing that keeps that makes this better is that you don't have to stand there with them. 
I mean, restrained is a better condition to inflict your enemies with than grappled, but yeah, grappling doesn't cost money. Every time you get your net destroyed, <laughs> you've wasted your turn and used a gold. I'd rather throw a gold away every time I would have otherwise used a net. Every time I take a turn, I'd rather spend a gold than have a net and try and make an attack with it. Plus, you mentioned that you have to be of a size that can be afflicted by this. Huge and slar- like huge and larger creatures are unaffected, meaning that only tiny, small, medium, and large are affected by a net at all. Which is, I mean... I mean, it's a lot. You know, granted, most of the creatures in D&D, but also most of those creatures would not think twice about being able to deal five slashing damage or a DC 10 strength check. I don't know if we need to go on about this anymore. The net's just really bad. Like, I would be impressed. I would be legitimately impressed if someone told me about a way that they could reliably use a net and get some sort of mileage out of it. So we've picked on a couple of our honorable mentions over the course of the episode already. But the other three big ones for me that you should probably just never take, just because they're not good, would be the sling and the whip, and the blowgun. Other than that, maybe the mace? Simple melee weapon, deals d6 bludgeoning damage. At that point, just take the quarterstaff, get that versatile property, save several times the money, and make sure that you can use it. Not everybody can use a mace. Everybody can use a quarterstaff, and it is better. I was about to figure out why you were hating on maces, because that was like the cleric staple back in the day. I mean, it kind of still is, but it's that doesn't make it good. That's fair. That's fair. My personal least favorite weapon has got to be the Great Club. Granted, it deals a D8 of bludgeoning damage, which should make it on par with the quarterstaff on the spear, except that it has to be two-handed in order to benefit from that quality. Not having the option to use it with one hand and, like, pick up a shield just feels a little bit limiting. Like, because, again, the quarterstaff or the spear both have just more options baked in. But when I'm looking for a weapon that I have to wield with two hands, I would like it to be heavy, making it eligible for Great Weapon Master. Because if it doesn't have the heavy trait, it is not eligible for Great Weapon Master, which is one of the hallmark feats for melee characters looking to deal a lot of damage. Yeah, like I said, Quarterstaff is better than the Great Club. It has the option for that D8. Like you said, you can take your hand off of it. It has the option for Shillelagh. I think the Great Club does too. It does, yeah. And it works with Polearm Master. Yeah, because that's the other big feat that you take as a melee weapon character to really boost your damage. It synergizes very well with Great Weapon Master. It synergizes very well with the Sentinel feat. Uh, there's also some weird stuff that you can do. Like if you're a Blade Singer wizard, you can cast cantrips when people come into within 10 feet of you. It's just some. There's a lot of things that you can do with a polearm like a quarterstaff or like a spear, which are both other simple weapons that have similar damage outputs that you can't do with a great club. I just, I will take my options, please. Thank you. (laughs) I don't care that the great club is only two silver pieces. That's the same price as the quarterstaff. Exactly. Yep. Well, before we wrap things up, we'll give brief mention to the fact that we have mentioned a lot of feats in this episode. And we could go on. Oh, we could go on. (laughs) We've already had a whole episode, two episodes, I think, talking about some great feats that we love in the game. 
And some of them, many of them, are tied to particular fighting styles, to particular types of weapons, and to martial classes in general. If you are going to be taking these weapons, if you're going to be playing classes that are going to be making the most of them, you are probably going to be taking feats, and they're probably going to help you optimize whatever build that you're going for. Polearm Master, Sentinel, Crusher, Sharpshooter, Crossbow Expert, Gunner, to name a few. Dual Wielder. How did I forget Dual Wielder? That was in my top five. Uh, Are all great options. And there's so many more. They can take an okay weapon and make it good. Or they can take one of the better weapons and make them peerless. So as you are thinking about your weapon selection for your particular character, maybe take a scroll through the feats list and find something that really seals the deal, that really locks in your favorite weapon and makes it all that it could be. Yeah, I think I joked in the Feats episode intro that Feats were one of the very first things that I considered about my character. That is true. I think that I will more often build a character around a feat choice that I want to take over a class choice and on par with a subclass choice. You are not wrong to think that way. It is, it is not the way I think, but you are not wrong to think that way. Was that hard for you to say? That feels like it was hard for you to say. <laughs> Many things are hard for me to say at this time of the night, so we should probably wrap things up. Yeah, why don't you say goodnight, Gracie? Good night, Gracie. <laughs> so, man, that's an old reference. That's that reference is older than we are. Oh, I mean, you know, many things are because we are so young. Oh yes, the youngest. He said, trying trying to look young for the camera. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I appreciated it. You know what else we appreciate? You guys. And speaking of you guys, what's your favorite weapon on this list that we might have missed? Is there anyone out there who really wants to stand up in defense of nets and great clubs? I'm sure there's going to be somebody in the Discord who's going to come and tell us why lances are the best reach weapons because of that 1d12. I'll I'll have that conversation with you. I happily will. You know what? The lance is a weapon you can build around because it is a weapon you have to build around. <laughs> if you want to hear about how I feel about lances, you can come and join our Discord and we can have that discourse. Ooh. Links to all of our socials, including our Discord community, are down in the description of this episode. Steven or I check those things every day, and we love hearing from you guys with questions, tips, commentary. Name-calling, blackmail, death threats. And, and maybe not those so, so much. If you like hearing us, I guess specifically me, talking about D&D and D&D theory and topical matters, I work for Misty Mountain Gaming and run their YouTube channel where you can find some rapidly aging videos of me talking about different mechanics or roleplay opportunities in the game. And I'm live three times a week over on the Misty Mountain streaming Twitch channel, playing D&D, talking about it, or occasionally playing games with you guys on the channel. I don't want to talk for too long in this outro. Are we ready to segue into the exit? And hey, did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you share it with a couple of friends or family members who are also into the hobby? We're always looking for a chance to grow our community. 
But hey, either way, thank you so much for coming back again this week. We really appreciate you being here with us and listening to yet another episode of our podcast. We look forward to sitting down with you once again in another two weeks for our next episode of Bardic Twinspiration. The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardic twinspiration and on Twitter at btwinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Links in the description. Come check it out. Webster's Dictionary defines a weapon as... Hi, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us again. Uh... I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> what some of the the uh, what do you put? The less the less good, the bad, the suboptimal. The ones that you should basically never pick. <laughs> I was thought it was time for me to say something. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Martial weapons are ones that require a little bit more training. They require a little bit more. I, I really want to say finesse, but I shouldn't say finesse. <laughs> and yes, as I said before. To say, yeah, and yes, as I said before, the, and yes, as I said before, <laughs> the monks, weirdly, are proficient are proficient in sort. Wow, that is a that's hard to say. Like weirdly enough, monks are proficient in sort. <laughs> <laughs> now it made the blooper real. Are, are proficient in sh- proficient in short swords? The, uh, yeah, but I've had a beer, so that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Like monks, weirdly enough, are proficient in short swords. Nailed it! I think it is it Kinshiro? Maybe. I don't know. It's been so long since I've seen that dude. I don't I don't care about being right about it. Yep, Kinshiro. But I'm not sure that it's better, I'm just more excited about it. And yet I forgot I I passed up the opportunity to play. Uh, I gotta find out what it is now. It's one of the new ones. Is it the Mysticati of Sea of Theros one? College of Spirits. College of Spirits, yeah. Taking these weapons, if you're going to be playing classes that are going to be making the most of them, you are probably be going to take... You're, excuse me. Probably going to be taking feats. So as you are thinking about what weapons you would like your character to play, it's probably worth it to have character a quick scroll play. through the free... Hmm? You said the weapons you would like your character to play. Ah, 